there is a confrontation taking place in Ephesus. A struggle between teachers of falsehood and teachers of truth. At stake is not merely the personal ego of who is right and who is wrong, but at stake is the justification and thus the salvation of those who are participating and members of the Ephesian church. That's what we saw last week in the appearance of, of false teaching. As we continue into the letter of Timothy, 1 Timothy specifically, we move on from his description of false teaching and now see a contrast with true teaching. So I want to ask you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1. And I want to bring to you a message that I have titled, Confrontation in Ephesus, The Aim of True Teaching. For those of you using the Bible in front of you, you can find today's text on page 932. Please stand for the reading of God's word. The word of God reads, beginning in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations, rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and the sinners, for the unholy and the profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. You may be seated. Mark Bailey Chancellor of Dallas Theological Seminary suggests that you can choose your actions or you can choose your consequences, but you cannot choose both. On one side, you can choose consequences. Then you've given up the right to choose the action that would be contrary to those consequences. But on the other side, you can choose your action but that action then has consequences, and you must be content with those consequences. If you want to plant corn, you cannot plant peas. If you plant peas, you cannot expect corn. You either choose your action, that I'm going to plant peas and accept that the consequence that will follow, that you will not grow corn. You can't be disappointed then when peas actually show up, if that's what you plant. On the other side, you, you can instead choose your consequences. 
You can say, I want corn, and that determines then your actions. You cannot say, I want corn, and then choose to plant peas. You can choose your actions, or you can choose your consequences, but you cannot choose both. For the human heart, then, we have the same option. We must either choose the culture, or we must choose Christ. We cannot choose to follow the world and then expect to look like Christ. Neither can we choose Christ and then make decisions that would engage us with the culture, at least at, at the cultural level. In talking about the stewardship of money, the Lord Jesus Christ illustrates this truth in Matthew 6, 24. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one or love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The same hold tr holds true for the corporate body of Christ, as much as it does for the individual member of the body of Christ. If the church is committed to consequences, choosing to a consequence, and choosing to follow that, they must take the necessary steps then to head towards that consequence, to head towards that goal. They must know full well, though, that that comes at a cost. Sometimes that could cost financially. But with matters of the heart for the body of Christ, that cost is often far greater. Sometimes it costs personal time. It takes sacrifice of time to come alongside a person to regularly disciple them to the point of maturity, as we see Paul does in Colossians 1.28. The steps also cost ourselves a sacrifice of our wants for the needs of others to see the church then head towards that intended consequence. If the church chooses a consequence, the people of that church must take action towards that goal. And I would tell you that we must work towards consequences because the Lord has already defined the outcome for us. He has already set the consequence. The confrontation taking place in Ephesus is that. The church is at a decision point. It's at a point at which it either, either must choose its actions or it must choose its consequences. It must either choose its action to follow the false teachers and accept the consequence that will result, or... They must choose their consequence, which is to live out the call of God for the church, meaning they must then take actions to follow Timothy's lead, to rid themselves of the false teachers that are infiltrating that church. Within this setting of what is taking place in Ephesus, we have Paul and we have Timothy, and they're seeking to really right the ship, to right the church there so that the decision is made to leave Timothy there, to leave him behind. And then Paul writes this, the aim of our charge is love that issues from my pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. This verse from verse five of chapter one of 1 Timothy is our goal to look at today. What the apostle Paul has done here, has, he has set the consequences. He has already set the aim of what they hope to accomplish. And now that aim sets the, the actions that they will take to reach that goal. In light of the appearance of false teaching, 
in the previous verse, in verses 3 and verses 4 that we saw, the Christian here is called to action. This is true for us today just as much as it was true for the church in Ephesus back then. When we see the truth of God distorted as stewards of the faith, we're called upon to confront that falsehood and defend the truth. But the goal of our defense is not to be dogmatic in doctrine. The goal of our defense is not to be tenacious in our theology. The objective of this confrontation is to impact the heart as much as it is to impact the head. The goal of our teaching and the goal of our theology stipulated by verse 5 here is love. And so we come to this verse and we begin to look at the consequence that the church is to take action for. Very quickly, the first thing I want you to note is the one standard the one standard. The world in which we live has standards. The world is set by specifications that determine safety and quality and even ethics. You only need to ask someone who has tried to modify a building or to add an addition or build an addition onto their home. Or in some cases, maybe trying to add a lift to a church. Ask those people what permits they needed and what requirements they had to fulfill in order to proceed. And I'm sure that they can give you a long list of conditions. That list just affirms that indeed our world has standards, whether we agree with those standards or not. There are standards of finance and business. We live by standards of measurement and standards of quality and standards of safety. There are standards of engineering that set Tolerances, for example. But what tolerances are necessary that they would set have no meaning here because our standard is God. And our standard then is the tolerance for God's holiness. In education, there are standards of learning. What is the minimum necessary, the minimum knowledge necessary for an individual to participate in life? But again, for Christians... Our participation in life is determined by our knowledge of God. For Christians, our one standard is God. Just as an example, there, there are Christian standards, and those standards may appear in many forms, but it always comes back to God. Consider the example of love, which we're going to see. Love takes many forms. Love your spouse, love your children, love your enemies, love your neighbors. It's expressed in many ways, but we do so only because of God. God has commanded it. God has communicated that to us, and it is God's character. So the one standard that Christians operate by is the standard of God. The commitment to this one standard, this commitment, causes Paul then here to submit to the Holy Spirit, and, and under his inspiration, he writes this, the aim of our charge, the aim of our charge. There's an agenda in place here for Ephesus. <coughs> the reason for Paul and Timothy's overseeing of this current situation of false teaching coming into the church is to accomplish a particular purpose. Our text uses the word aim, which signifies the desire to bring this situation to a point of completion or a point of perfection. 
Their goal is not to bring the situation under control. Their goal is not to assert their own authority. The intention of Paul and Timothy is to see this situation through all the way to the end in order to bring about the perfection of God's will and God's word and God's work. There's only one agenda here. The text does not read our goals. It doesn't read our ambitions as in plural. Neither does it read an aim of ours as if there might be another aim. The text says the aim. One. There's only one aim and it's already settled. The one goal of their confrontation in Ephesus is love and that's set by God. It is based upon who he is and what he has said. The aim of 1 Timothy 1.5 is simply an application of points like 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it for the glory of the Lord. That's all Paul's doing here is our aim of our charge is love that we may glorify the Lord. It's also born out of points like 1 John 4.8 saying that God is love. Or John 14.6 where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Because he is truth, falsehood needs confrontation. But because he is love, it is done in a way that responds and and reflects that attribute. There is only one standard. That standard, though, presents a departure from what the false teachers are trying to accomplish. Look at the text in your Bibles. When you look at 1 Timothy 1.5 here, what do you not see in your Bible. Probably don't see anything because it's not there. But if you look at the verse and what your text says, it it reads, but the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Unless you're reading the New American Standard, your Bible lacks the word but. I assure you it's in the Greek manuscripts. That word but, those, those three letters, they're critical because they offer a contrast. But the aim of our charge. Paul is saying basically our ambition is to glorify God through love. But the false teachers who he just spoke of in the previous verses, they operate by another standard. Their standard is themselves, but our standard is God. Paul and Timothy, the the aim of their charge, it's set by God's authority and by God's attributes. Those who believe and follow God, they operate by a standard of God. But this isn't just that they have to. It's not merely that this is a requirement to follow the standard of God. The reality is we need a standard of God. It's by God's grace that he has given us any standard at all. If we don't have a standard of God, do you know what happens? God leaves us to our own devices, and Romans chapter 1 tells us that we will become futile in our thinking, and we will have darkened hearts. It also says we will exchange the truth of God for the lies of the world, and goes further to say we will serve and worship the creation rather than the creator. We need a standard, because without it there is no limit to our depravity. That standard then then influences every aspect of our lives. 
It influences our agreements and disagreements with one another. It influences my greeting or lack of greeting with somebody in the grocery store line. It influences my marriage, my parenting, my work, my leisure. The list goes on and on and on. In the case of our text, the standard of God influences Paul and Timothy's leadership in Ephesus. The standard determines both why and how Paul and Timothy are going to confront the false teaching dividing the church. When we looked upon last week's text, I said we need to stand for truth. We need to stand against false teaching. That's true. But today's text now sets the standard for doing so. If we don't have a standard of God, the standard becomes self. And a confrontation based on a standard of self becomes argumentative. Sometimes it becomes manipulative. And most times it definitely becomes combative. No wonder people can't have a discussion in today and disagree. Their standard is self, not God. But with God as a standard, we confront false teaching in a way that is consistent with God. In a way that exalts his truth, not our opinion. In a way that glorifies his name, not our reputation. If the goal of our teaching, of any one of our teaching, is simply to persuade, or if the goal of our discussion is to win the argument, or if the goal of our evangelism is merely to change somebody's mind, we're doing it wrong. In evangelism, I want somebody to change their mind. I want them to come to Christ. But the goal, the standard is to engage in God's work, in God's way, for God's glory, regardless of the result. The goal, which we're going to see, is to follow God and do it in love. The standard of life is not to please others. It's not to please self. The standard is to please God. And that standard then determines how we interact with false teaching, which is then set by the next point and next part of the verse. And so I want you to know from the one standard, the two statutes. The two statutes. Not only is there one aim or one standard, but then verse 5 speaks of two statutes. The text reads, the aim of our charge is love. The standard of the charge is that Timothy, by confronting these false teachers, creates an environment in which love flourishes. But love is always measured by two aspects, a love of God and a love of others. When confronted by the Pharisees and the Sadducees, we all know the story that Jesus explains that the greatest commandment of all is to love God. And then he says the second is like it, to love others. The command to love must always include both. You cannot have one without the other. The outcome of loving God is to love others. While at the same time, you can't genuinely love others if you do not love God. We speak much about how the love of God impacts a Christian life. It transforms leadership from, or transforms leadership from headship to servitude. The love of God moves the first to the last and the last to the first. Here, godly love now transforms our teaching. Consider that godly love both produces sound teaching and godly love is a product of sound teaching. First, love produces sound teaching. Think of it this way. If I love God, 
I will not want to see his name and his character defamed by the false teaching of others. At the same time, neither do I want to be responsible for dishonoring God by my own teaching. I'm going to seek to teach truth. In the same way, if I love others, neither do I want to see their relationship hindered by falsehood. True, genuine love of God and others produces true, genuine teaching. But love doesn't just produce true teaching. Love is also a product of true teaching. That's the aspect that we see displayed in our text, that love comes as a result of true teaching. Timothy has been tasked or charged with charging those others, the ones that are teaching contrary to the Christ, to the stop their teaching. And he's calling them to return to true teaching, the aim of which is to see love become the disposition of both the teachers and the church there. False teaching will always sow division and discord. It actually looks very contrary to love. But the object of love, the, the object of true teaching here is love. Do you see how this transforms our teaching? When we teach others, whether it be Sunday school or, or church, in Bible study, in our family, in school, in discipleship, whatever it may be, the goal you hear often defined is to impart knowledge. But the objective isn't knowledge at all. The aim of teaching is to impart love. Teaching and knowledge are simply the means for leading somebody to that. As an example, I stand here this morning preaching from the Word of God. I do so not merely so that we would become more knowledgeable. I teach and preach, importing knowledge, imparting knowledge, so that we may impart love more. The product of genuine teaching should be genuine love. Paul's logic makes sense here if you consider John 13, 35. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. It is here that Jesus himself identifies that the mark of true Christian is true love. It makes sense then that in the same way the mark of true teaching is also true love. True doctrine produces true love while false theology will produce false love. Writing about 1600 years ago, Christostom he explains this connection between false love and false theology and he says, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. It is this that has been the occasion for all heresies. He goes further, but I'm not going to spend time there. Christostom, though he writes so long ago, <laughs> he sounds a bit like me, looking back and lamenting that things are not what they used to be, saying things like, well, back in my day, the kids were more respectful. The people were more thoughtful. That's how he sounds. Back in my day, the wickedness wasn't as bad. His explanation, though, isn't wrong. In fact, it brings out something very important that we see in our text. There's a connection in our culture between the lack of love and false teaching. Why can't people act in a manner consistent of godly love? because they've never been taught what true love is. And the secular ideology being propagated today is contrary to what genuine love is. 
shouldn't be a surprise that we see a world that we see. A lack of love propagates false theology, and false theology propagates a lack of love. False theology is often born out of the notion that I agree with this because it suits me to believe it. That's a love of self, not a love of God. At the same time, false theology also creates a lack of love because it teaches an improper application of love. Again, no wonder people have no basis for getting along these days. Knowledge isn't meant to puff up. Knowledge is meant to put up. It puts up a defense for God. It puts up a display of Christ-likeness, and it puts up a disposition of godly love. If you want to test your theology, then test your love. Philip Graham Riken asks, do we practice the doctrine of love as much as we love our doctrine? What's interesting about this aim of love, the confrontation of false teaching here, it's not about condemnation. It's not about who's right. The confrontation of false teaching now becomes an act of mercy. It's a pity on people for the consequences of sin, the consequences of what is being taught. Somebody made a comment about Democrats and Republicans the other day, and it occurred to me how they give an example here, and, and please forgive me, I'm going to make this political for a moment. Look at the relationship between Democrats and Republicans. Neither wants the other group to succeed. They actually root for the failure of the other. In fact, they rejoice each time the other makes a mistake or the other makes a big gaffe, and the bigger, the better. That's not the case here. That's not what we see. There's no competition between the false teachers and the true teachers. This isn't about asserting my way over somebody else's way or Paul and Timothy asserting their way over the false teacher's way. They're meant to assert God's way. What Paul and Timothy are attempting to do by confronting the false teaching, it's an act of love in order to produce love, a love of God and a love of others. The standard, the aim of confrontation then, is to produce these two statutes. Genuine love, though, is not something that we just summon up from within ourselves. It comes from the Lord's work within a person's life. The one standard is to accomplish God's objective. The two statutes are to love God and love others. I want you to note third now, the three sources. The one standard, the two statutes, and the three sources. If false teaching is to be confronted with the hope of seeing the false teachers turn from their ways and instead come to love God and love others, the love that causes anyone to confront that false teaching must come from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. At the same time, that's the same love they want to generate. We want to see the false teachers come to a love that is from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. We look first at a pure heart. In his second letter to Timothy, Paul writes, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. From that text, the pursuit of God and godliness begins with a pure heart. It is the heart, then, that determines one's relationship with God and with others. The heart must be freed 
from dirt and debris that defiles it. It must be purified. True teaching leads to a pure heart because it leads to Christ. And it is by the acceptance of Christ's work and the coming of the Holy Spirit that the heart is washed and that dirt and that grime and that debris falls away and the heart is now made pure. In fact, the idea of a pure heart is that it has been washed. Writing to Titus in Titus chapter 2, Paul says, Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And then in the next chapter he goes on to say, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. The heart is dead in sin, is regenerated to life by the Spirit. It is purified, and falling away is the blackness of the sin that defiles it. Those spotted marks that make a white garment soiled are now washed out, and one becomes able to see God. Having been cleansed from self-centeredness, self-interest, self-righteousness, the heart is free from self-love and is now free to love God and love others. The heart is often considered the source of all emotions and intentions. It is the locus of human personality, as one commentator notes. Only when the heart is purified, then, can these be purified. If the heart has not been purified, it no longer has the capacity to radiate Christian love. A second course of, or second source of genuine love, according to Paul, is a good conscience. So we have a pure heart, now we have a good conscience. For most, the conscience is an obscure thing. It manifests itself through the voices in our head or the impressions in our heart. By that definition, the conscience is nothing but feelings and emotions and judgments, personal judgments. The word conscience, though, is made up of two words to mean joint knowledge. Knowledge that comes with someone or with something. Our conscience is rooted in the idea that we are made in the image of God. Having been made in the image of God, there are certain attributes that are inherent to our nature because of who God is. Our ability to do some good acts comes from being made in his goodness. Our ability to think deeply or rationally or logically. All of that is the result of being made in the image of God who thinks deeply and rationally and logically. In the same way, then, the conscience comes from being made in his image. By creating us in this way, the Lord's statutes and the Lord's standards, they're inherently part of who we are to at least some degree so that we know the difference between right and wrong to some degree. We may not know them fully, but the conscience awakens us to God's law. As Simon Kistemaker describes it, a good conscience will not merely abhor what is wrong, but it also embraces what is right. And that's why a good conscience becomes something that is urged for all Christians in the writings of Paul. The conscience, though, is not the ultimate judge. Consider 1 Corinthians 4.4. Paul says, For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. 
It is the Lord who judges me. Notice what he says there. There is nothing in Paul's conscience that convicts him that he has done anything wrong. But he leaves the door open, basically to say that he may be wrong on something, and one day he will stand before God, and God will judge him thoroughly and perfectly. We must remember that Scripture tells us that the conscience can be weakened through immaturity in 1 Corinthians 8. In the same passage, it says it can be wounded through wrong. In 1 Timothy 4, it says the conscience can be seared to insensitivity by rebellion. And in Titus chapter 1, it can even be defiled by sin. The conscience then must be confirmed by God's word and godly counsel. The false teachers have rejected all of this. In fact, they've rejected a good conscience, according to what Paul writes later on in 1 Timothy chapter 1. By its nature, a guilty conscience is always on the defense. It always wants to avoid conviction and condemnation. And so the guilty conscience is ready to justify itself and to defend itself. It hinders the possibility of love by being self-focused and self-oriented. A good conscience, though, it, it acts in a way that is in the interest of God and others. And thus that fulfills those two statutes, love God, love others. Finally, Paul mentions one more source of genuine love. We have a good conscience. We have a pure heart. Now we have a sincere faith. Faith is integral to all that we do. And so crucial is faith to the function of the body of Christ that in these first five verses, Paul mentions faith three times already. But notice how it's qualified here in our text. It's not just any faith. It says a sincere faith. Was there such a thing as an insincere faith? If it's insincere by its nature, it cannot be faith. So why does Paul mention it here? Because there are many things masquerading as faith that are not faith at all. The false teachers themselves in Ephesus exemplify this by teaching something that is insincere and presenting it as sincere. For some people, faith is not in Christ, but in self. It's in one's own knowledge, in one's own ability. It's even in one's own conscience. The call here, though, it's, it's for authentic faith. But faith is not merely the absence of deception. The word sincere carries the meaning of unhypocritical. It is a faith that lacks hypocrisy, that is lived out in words and in actions. And how do we know that a faith is sincere and unhypocritical? When it is proven true by the way it loves others. Genuine love is born out of a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. The false teachers have none of these. According to chapters 4 and 5, they are deceitful. They don't have a pure heart, they're deceitful. Chapter 4, verse 2 says they have seared their conscience. So they don't have a good conscience. And then in chapter 1, and later on in 2 Timothy chapter 3, it says their faith is shipwrecked. So they have no pure heart, they have no good conscience, and they have no sincere faith. When taught correctly, a conscience convicts the heart. 
It draws it to God, and a pure heart opens the way for conviction, leading to a sincere faith. Of course, all of this comes by the work of the Spirit. The context of our verse is love in in light of false teaching. But Paul's teaching here tells us something about love. It tells us that a genuine love includes three ingredients, or comes from three ingredients, a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. If upon a legitimate self-examination we see that our lives lack love, or if our testimony before others lacks love, then we have to ask ourselves, in which of these three areas am I deficient? What am I lacking? There is only one standard. There's two, two statutes, and we see three sources here. Each of those lends themselves to an interaction with false teaching. The standard is to confront false teaching because it goes against God. The statutes are to confront it so that it may generate a love of God and a love of others. And the source of that love is a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. You can choose your actions or you can choose your consequence, but you cannot choose both. Such a truth is relevant to many realms of life, but this morning we find it applicable to the church. The church in Ephesus is at a decision point. Choose its consequence to be a God-glorifying, God-honoring church and take action to do just that by following Timothy's lead and ridding themselves of the false teaching, or it can choose its actions to follow the false teachers and then accept the consequences that may result, even to the point of eternal condemnation. The church in the modern era finds itself at a similar decision point. The current era of false teaching lacks Christ-likeness because it fails to call the church to Christ-likeness. We can choose the actions of a modern teaching that calls upon complacency rather than Christ. We can choose the actions of cultural teaching that call us to contentment in self rather than a contentment in Christ. Or we can choose the consequence to be a body of Christ as individuals and as a body of Christ, as a church corporately, to glorify God in all that we do by becoming transformed into the image of God's Son. We must either choose our consequences or our actions, because we can't choose both. Let's pray. Father God, you're a good and gracious God. And Father, we're so grateful that we've been made in your image, Lord. Father, We're grateful that we can come to know you, that we can know who you are. And Father, in a world that does teach contrary to you, we we pray that we would be bold in our faith. But Father, more than that, I also pray that we would be willing to look upon ourselves as a result as well. Father, let us examine ourselves, examine our hearts, let us examine our love, and may that cause us to love you more and love others more as we seek to see you purify our heart and give us a good conscience and a sincere faith. Father, we're thankful that you are at work in that way in our lives. And so may we seek after you wholeheartedly in all things. 
help us to choose our consequence or see the consequence you've already chosen for us to be Christ-like and help us to walk in the actions that lead towards that. We thank you for all that you do in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.